Hello, Lightning Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lightning Thoughts Podcast. On this interview, I get to interview Chef Jenny Dorsey. Chef Jenny Dorsey is a professional chef, an author, speaker, and she explores the intersection of food, identity, and vulnerability. And for those of you who have been following the podcast for a while, you know that Chef has been on the podcast before. I had her on uh, quite a bit ago, uh, maybe almost a year ago at this point. And when I had her on, I had intended to ask her all the questions that we talk about in this episode, but instead we got into the conversation of the sustainability of being a cook and what it's like to uh, work in fine dining kitchens as she has had a lot of experience in that and I've had some experience and um, we had a whole episode on that and I really, you know, if you have not heard that, I would definitely suggest you go listen to that episode because we got a lot of great feedback on it. Uh, I felt like a lot of people could relate to that episode. I was really proud of that episode and really excited over that conversation. So if you go find it, um, it's uh, quite a ways back in the episode catalog, but definitely a good one to check out. Uh, But on this episode, uh, we chat about the work she does. Uh, I really find her work interesting. Uh, She has a nonprofit called Studio Tao, and basically it is a nonprofit immersive events company that creates live experiences at the intersection of food, art, technology, and social impact. And, you know, I'm just like so interested in the work she does. You know, she tries to integrate or she does integrate VR into her dining experiences. And there's always um, there's always a positive message or a message uh, for change that uh, she believes needs to happen in the industry. And in this episode, you know, we dive deep into that idea of the changes that uh, she believes, you know, <laughs> need to change in the industry. And I was just super impressed and super um, interested in everything she had to say. And, you know, there are a lot of things in our industry, as we've seen over the last few years, that do need to change. And I think it's chefs like her who are super talented and are putting her work with food and her work with media out there and trying to create positive force of change in the industry. I think that's the chefs, you know, that are going to leave the largest impact in the years to come. So I definitely want to thank her for coming on. Um, I also wanted to congratulate her. She just got uh, done putting out a TED talk, which I think is super interesting. It's uh, TED, how food can be a source of identity, intimacy, and vulnerability. And it was really great. You can go on her Instagram and check it out, or you can find it on YouTube. But really interesting TED talk, a uh, really great story she tells in there that, you know, I I hadn't really thought of that viewpoint before, the way she told her story, and I was so impressed. So a ton of stuff to check out in terms of what she's working on and what she's doing for our industry. But I'm very excited for you all to hear this conversation, so I'll stop talking now, but I really hope you all are doing okay. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode, and here we go. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Chef, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, if you just want to reintroduce yourself real quick, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Jenny Dorsey. I'm a professional chef, writer, and the founder of a nonprofit 
immersive immense company called Studio Tao. Um, we create culinary-based experiences that are rooted in some sort of bigger social impact topic, or best known for a uh, museum exhibition and series we have called The Asian in America, which talks about the Asian American identity through six courses of food and drink, as well as virtual reality and poetry. We're currently in pre-production for another series and um, another arm of the nonprofit that we launched this year does community initiatives, um, which I can talk about a little bit later, but those are industry-specific facilitated discussions where we have professionals from various industries come and discuss how they can better integrate social impact into their work. The most recent one, we um, gathered the food media industry and we talked about how food media can better represent non-white cultures without tokenizing them and had a lot of really great insights from that. And we compile educational resources out of all of those gatherings. So we just put together a toolkit about like tokenization in food media. So yeah, I'll talk more about that later on. Awesome. Well, you know, like I said, very excited to have you back on the show. I'm really excited to kind of showcase what you've been working on. The, the last time for everyone listening, the chef came on, we had started to talk about it, but then we talked about another sub- subject, which was more along the lines of fine dining um, and kind of the state of that part of the industry, which uh, obviously I would suggest anyone go listen to. I thought it was a really good conversation. But first off, before we get going, I just was uh, wondering how you've been doing during this and, um, you know, just, you know, making sure everything's been okay on your end. Yeah, I mean, definitely. This has been a really hard time. Um, the nonprofit is an events business, which requires people being together and eating things. So um, unfortunately, everything on our end has been canceled indefinitely because we just don't know when things are going to open back up, when venue partners and the such will even, you know, be open to hosting us. If not, it, like our guests going to want to come and do anything like that. So that's been a little bit challenging. Um but we're hanging in there. We've kind of pivoted and obviously have been doing some virtual stuff just like everyone else and kind of figuring out what that space because it hasn't really been um, something we like do. Um, so we started this series called the Community Skillshares where we have experts come and you know share their expertise with the community for free. And we use our research and synthesizing data muscles and put together all these like long resource documents that accompany said episodes. So for example, we had two episodes about finance, one about personal finance and one about financial planning for small businesses that are CFO led. And we had tons of resources with that. And then we have another episode coming up this Friday with um, a woman who's a bakery manager, but also is a seamstress um, at night. Like she just makes things with fabric, which I like can't even fathom because I don't do that. And so she's teaching <laughs> a class on mask making this Friday, and then we're doing four weeks of mental health with two therapists, who, which I'm really excited about, like talking about navigating grief, um, talking about how to develop healthy coping mechanisms, how to, you know, process your different types of relationships right now, etc. And then we're going to do one on civic engagement and local politics. So like, that's been keeping me busy and just like giving me something to feel like I'm contributing, I'm doing something for my industry, and also hopefully like helping people. All right. I mean, that's a lot uh, to be doing during this time. And, you know, off, you know, first off, thank you for spending the time to do that. Um, I did see that you were putting out episodes kind of, like you said, helping with financial as- aspects for people in the industry right now. So definitely uh, going to share that. Um, but I do want to get into uh, how you started uh, out with Studio Tao and kind of what the story behind it was. 
um, yeah. you know, kind of how, how you thought of it or what the creation process was like? Yeah, sure. Um, so I uh, first started before Studio Tao was Studio Tao. Um, it was something called Wednesdays. And before Wednesdays, it was something called I Forgot It's Wednesday, which is a supper club. Um, I started in 2014. And the idea has always been and continues to be, how do we bring people together to talk about more intellectual, more deep, more thoughtful topics than what they're used to have, um, having in terms of small talk at the dinner table? And uh, it like we became became a mix of both friends and friends of friends, and then slowly like strangers. And a few months in, we decided to do a huge pop up. We had only been doing dinners of like eight people until then, and then all of a sudden we decided to do a hundred. So we learned a lot. And from that year on, we my husband, who's our front of house person and and our mixologist, um, him and I have been kind of hosting these dinners like ad hoc. And I never really knew what I wanted to do with it. I was kind of, I was consulting a lot on the side. I was doing the dinners. And then, you know, over time, I just realized if I wanted these dinners to be a lot more impactful, if I wanted people to not just come and kind of have a party because we were getting enough press that people were just coming, not for the point of it, just to be there, then I had to really focus on what I wanted to actually talk about topic-wise at the dinners and have the entire experience be about that. And it needs to be kind of a bigger event planning sort of thing. Um, on the same note, a lot of my consulting work, I realized like I wanted to do mission-driven consulting work after doing a couple of nonprofit-based projects. So I think that everything kind of coalesced together where I was like, okay, I want this to have some sort of social impact. It doesn't make sense for this to be a for-profit ad hoc thing. So I turned it to a nonprofit and uh, the first concept that came out of that was Asian America, which I mentioned, we debuted that in 2018. So um, that's a very personal thing for me as a first generation Chinese American immigrant and just using food as a platform to talk about different topics within the Asian American identity from the model minority myth to the white male savior complex to the interchangeable Asian and how that doesn't in just impact me, but the rest of the industry and Americans are perceived. Um, so, um, sorry, there was like a weird sad thing. I was like, wait, what's happening? Anyway, so, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, realizing that like this made sense, I wanted to add different elements into it. And so kind of organically, like virtual reality kind of came about, poetry kind of came about. And that has been a museum experience that we've been touring since to August 2018. Um, so building off of that, I kind of realized this, like, this is like the niche that I want to play in where there's food, there's art, there's a, some a sort of immersive component, and there's also a deeper social meaning. So all of the experiences that we've built out of that um, so far has kind of been able to like tackle what the centerpieces are between each of them. We have one called Hidden which talks about cognitive dissonance and self-deceptance. And that one has food and drink, um, immersive dance, as well as virtual reality and poetry. Um, there's one that we're in pre-production for, which is called Blast Through Skin, which talks about the invisibility of female pain, the normalization of female pain. Um, and that one will probably be more like installation art plus food. But yeah, TBD, that's another something that's kind of been put on hold because of COVID. Okay. Um, so when you're at, like, I, I guess I would like to know more, like when someone attends an event, I mean, you obviously gave the topics of what you've talked about in the past, but how are you able to integrate it through food or like 
do your so your dishes do they reflect what you're trying to convey in terms of like a personal message or how are you able to kind of tie it all together at the event yeah for sure so for example um in asian in america each of the there's six courses of food and each so, for example, one course is about the model minority myth. And before the dinner, we'll prime all the guests by sending them a list of questions, about two to three additional follow-up questions um, for each topic for them to kind of discuss at their leisure. So for the model minority one, um, one of the questions is like, how has this um, impacted Asian Americans over generations? And how is it like, how is it still getting in our way today sort of thing? Um, hmm. Obviously, we send these in advance and we're not like moderating the conversation at every table, but it, we have found it's hugely helpful in just guiding the conversation and also setting the tone that these are serious dinners. We hope, we hope that people have fun, but there's like important things to discuss and the whole point is really going with other people. Um, so uh, we send things in advance. When people get there, they sit down. Every single course is either served with a poetry accompaniment or a virtual reality accompaniment. Um, so for the poetry courses, there's a poem that talks about the issue of the course. And for the virtual reality component, when we use a 360 video, once people go in, it's about two and a half minutes and they're watching a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that they're about to eat. Um, and there's explanation audio from me, like telling them why I chose these ingredients, what the symbolism is behind the ingredients and the plating style, um, as well as how it's you know, kind of put together. So again, for that dish on model minority, it looks like a, a maze. There's certain ingredients that represent different things. Um, one of them is like veal sweetbreads. And I draw this parallel between veal sweetbreads and Asian Americans, because veal sweetbreads, um, the main protein is veal sweetbreads. And I draw this parallel between veal sweetbreads and Asian Americans. Like both are kind of somehow championed as like the good minority veal sweetbreads are an offal and usually offals are kind of considered gross or distasteful but specifically for sweetbreads they're often you know used in gourmet dining they're seen as very you know expensive and like um like gourmet versus i don't know like pigs is not seen that way um and then for asian americans um often Asian Americans are kind of put as like, these are were the model citizens, the good minorities, and that's pitted against us um, so that we can um, essentially have, continue to have like a wedge against us and um, other minorities. So just talking about using the food as a way to get people to talk about these things. There's a lot of anti-blackness in the Asian American community. There's like obviously a lot of tension in the Asian community and Latin community. So like, how do, how do you use food as a, as a source of that sort of difficult conversation? Well, that's interesting. And what is the reception at the events? Um, it's really interesting. Uh, people are like, everybody kind of responds in their own way, but people get into really intense conversations. At our last dinner, we had this woman who, it was not a plant. She was a, a very lovely new guest for us. And she was like literally modeling the table. Like she was like, wait, we haven't discussed like this question that was sent out in the, in advance. Like she was in it. Like it was amazing. It was just really cool to see how people like just get fired up. They really get to know each other. It's usually um, groups of twos. And so like people, I mean, they, these are strangers and they are really like learning each other's life stories and like debating. It's yeah, it's awesome. That's really cool. I mean, 
I like the whole idea of the 360, um, like the two minutes where they get to see the plate come together, and obviously like a thoughtful dinner. I mean, I when I first like heard of what you do and kind of what the dinners were like, I know we touched upon it before on the other podcast, but I just I think it's like really ingenious to kind of um, go into topics like this over food because I think when you do dine with others, there's already a connection that you're able to establish and. I, I don't know. I think it's a smart platform. And I was listening to like your Ted talk even um, oh. this morning and um, which I thought was really interesting. And like, I don't know, like things I never would have thought about, like how you were describing in your childhood, like the food that you loved being, um, I guess, embarrassed to eat that at a certain point in your life. Like that's something I like, you know, wouldn't have thought of uh, as someone who eats quote unquote normal food for the people around me, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I know it was really interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and like going off of that, like, so obviously with your Ted talk, I thought it was like a really cool topic. I mean, when, uh, when did you realize you wanted to start speaking out more about like how you kind of felt during that time and you know, how we kind of don't realize these things in our cultures? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's definitely been a journey of like, kind of understanding what I even wanted to say. I think for a long time, I didn't, I was very nervous about like speaking political, uh, publicly, mostly because I just felt like I had a lot of feelings and I had a lot of thoughts, but I didn't know how to organize them. So I didn't have something like to present. And I think having like more years in the industry now and being able to interact with different types of people, I've like been able to kind of put my thoughts together more clearly too. Um, actually, one of the things that, I've been, I had been like, I think intrinsically understood that the reason I felt embarrassed about eating some of these foods or whatnot is because like, I wasn't seen as the quote unquote normal, that I wasn't seen as the standard, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And spending more time with food writers who are really um, actively working on how to like decolonize our language and also work on like how we change the perspective um, of food media and how it portrays. Um, any cultures that are not white, it has been like really instrumental in helping me like understand kind of my own feelings, grapple with a lot of those memories, and I hope put it towards something um, like a TED talk that's more pod- like that is positive, gives people something that they can uh, work like an aspirational thing that they can work towards for uh, equity. We um, I mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention this, but one of the things that we started doing at the studio this year is putting together community initiatives for industry professionals. And the every single discussion is like a small group facilitated conversation about how they can integrate one social impact topic into their work. And the most recent one we did was for food media professionals. And the question was, how can we better represent non-white cultures without tokenizing them? So from that, we put together this huge resources thing um, on how like a toolkit of like how to not tokenize people in food media and so much of what we've heard and what we understood is we often center a very like midwestern white upper middle class perspective when we talk about food and i never even really understood what that meant until now and how pervasive it is and how it influences how i see myself how i see other people how i think about price point all of that stuff okay and so what is that what is that perspective? I mean, like, how would you describe that perspective? Because it's definitely something I'm interested in kind of understanding right now. Yeah, for sure. So for example, if you are reading, let's say, a, a thing about sushi, 
um, it'll probably spend uh, some time explaining what Toro is or what uh, Unagi is or all of those things. But imagine if you were in a place that it was like in Japan, you, you read a pamphlet about sushi, there would be no explanation because the assumption is that you already know. So similarly in the States, we don't, uh, we don't like, uh, say like, well, if you can like imagine like when you're reading something, we don't stop and explain what toast is because every we just assume everybody knows what that is. So there's like these little assumptions that you think you see are baked into how um, food media assumes that if you're you know Japanese American and what your knowledge is is not the average American knowledge, but that what the average American like you know nobody explains what pop tarts to me. I didn't know what the fuck that was for like 13 years, <laughs> right? Because I'm not. Um, again, I'm continually reminded through these little uh, microaggressions that I'm not the I'm not who they're catering towards. Or if you see how many times, um, you know, certain publications will declare, oh, like Filipino food is trendy now, even though this is a type of food that people are eating their whole lives or they are have always grown up eating. It's not like a trend. But for nobody is nobody goes around saying like hamburgers are trendy now, you know, because the assumption is that people eat hamburgers like forever. They're not going to like stop eating hamburgers because it's not cool next year. Um, so having the sense of, you know, what your background is or what your culture is has a temporary, very temporary component to it is something that you'll notice a lot. Um, and then just on the back end, you'll see that for the most part, the mastheads of these media companies are primarily white, primarily male, primarily upper to yeah, upper middle class, you know, with similar education backgrounds. So that way they they also end up assigning articles to similar types of people who are in their social circles, right? So you will get kind of a narrow perspective on how one person sees the world. Um, there was an example that was given at one of our discussions about how one publication they sent um, a Latinx writer, but he happens to be Mexican-American to cover this Salvadorian market, just because, you know, that's probably the one Latinx writer that they, they had on, um, they had on roster that they know in their own social circles. And there was a Salvadorian woman who she writes um, about Salvadorian food. And she was like, that like really hurt me because there's so many of us who want to shine light on, you know, our culture. And yet it's like being told through the eyes of someone else because that kind of like systems of power and access are just not there yet for many minorities. So anyway, there's, there's a lot of ground to cover, but yeah, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I can definitely see how it would be a lot. Um, and so when you're conveying messages through like your dining experiences and like what you're trying to achieve with Studio Atau, how descriptive do you go into things that some people might not know? Like, for example, like, would you just write your menu or, when you're talking about your food, you you would just talk about all the ingredients as if everyone knows, and then that's it. I mean, that I mean that seems like it would be a, a good place to start from what you're telling me. Yeah, I mean, the I mean the approach that I take um, throughout the dinners is that the dinners are we we try to keep things through story, so it's not like you know you are bad or it or you did this or like making these generalizations. I try to um, explain these topics for those who are not perhaps not familiar with the model minority of this by telling them an example of my own past. Um, and then those who are familiar with it 
because they inherently that resonates with them, they'll usually feel open enough to share. Um, so I think the studio takes more of an educational like approach. We do explain things. We don't assume that everybody knows all the social justice topics that we want to talk about. For example, even using certain terminology, like how to uncenter yourself. And like, that's something that people might understand, but are not familiar with or whatever, what the difference between equity and equality, all those things, we like do take care to explain those when we're using them um, throughout our experiences so that we don't, you know, alienate anyone or feel that people like, they, you know, they feel like outsiders, so they don't want to get involved and do more social good. Okay. No, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, I'm sure you have to put a lot of thought into how you engage with everyone. I think the I think the story, I mean, going back to your TED Talk, because I did think it was really good uh, listening to it, is this thing that kind of grabbed my attention or really, like, made me, like, kind of shocked was you told the story of how when you were younger, um, you were at lunch at school and you were had picked up a piece of meat with your fork and you weren't like, really sure of, like, the exact way to go about eating it at the time and your teacher, like, called you out in front of everyone. I mean, that, that seems kind of crazy to me that someone would do that. Yeah, I mean, it's so strange, right, when people, um, when the, the the things that they're used to are challenged, and, you know, obviously that was, like, a terrible way for her to react, but I do think, fundamentally, it was, like, she didn't understand why I was acting in, this, in her mind, brutish way, by stabbing the whole ham and having it, like, you know, in a whole piece, not, like, cutting it into little pieces. Um, and I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to eat this. This makes no, why would you serve something like this? Um, and there's just so many of those like missed, misunderstandings and also just like lack, lack of understanding. I think, um, because America has been so like America first for so long, I think sometimes we forget that there's just ways that other people live their lives that we're not familiar with because we're not we're not the guiding light in their lives and our culture isn't the only culture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's been weird kind of just like understanding that as someone who is obviously American, but also like identifies with many different other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, like I said, it's just, it's interesting because, you know, I think that in our, like the food industry in itself, like for a long time, we've been focused on one, or maybe like three different cultures and those have been like the forefront of it. And as we start to get more and more into different cultures and what other foods represent their countries with, like, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I could see, I, I see your point of how, you know, you don't want to label it as a trend. Cause this is something how, like, this is how someone's lived their entire life. And I'm sure if someone was to, you know, see that their entire livelihood of eating is now a trend somewhere. I mean, I don't know. I feel like that, they would feel off about or they would be like confused as it's like the base of what they've been living their entire lives. Yeah, exactly. I think that when we speak about foods, you know, it's never really just only about food and what they're eating. It's very much encapsulate how you feel about those kinds of people. Um, I mean, there's interesting historical context that I mentioned in my TED talk about how Italian food used to be seen as really, really lowbrow. You know, James Beard himself was very like, I mean, he was French and he was a total asshole about Italian food and called it train food and nasty and all this stuff. Um, and then as Italian Americans started ascending the social economic ladder in the US, Italian food has now reached this, you know, this pinnacle, I suppose, where it's, all, it's usually seen as very gourmet and luxe and expensive. And so like food is inherently tied to 
like how we see the people and how we see the food are connected. And so that's why if you, you know, if you tell someone their food is a trend, it's almost like telling them that at some span of time, they're not going to be important anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like as, so as these different cultures and as these different cuisines get more interest, like, do you see a lot of cultures taking the same route as the Italian Americans did uh, when they when their like cuisine and their culture started started to rise and get, like you said rise up the economic ladder or do you like what do you see stopping that right now? Yeah, um, so I mean, obviously there's kind of uh, COVID's going on, so restaurants are on a bit of a pause. But before that, there was I think it was in the Washington Post or maybe it was in the I don't know. Um, I think it was the post about um, how the like the next wave of restaurants is going to be fancy, expensive Chinese food, and because like as China's global dominance grows and grows, I mean, China is really kind of like overtaking us in many ways, which is as a Chinese American is like it's like weirdly like I'm terrified because that's not great. I don't agree with their government structure, but also is like kind of almost amusing like oh man all these things that i didn't used to think was cool all these you know like jade rollers or whatever and now like all these white girls like that so it's like it's a very strange time but just being part of the chinese american food community and watching like many 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 of those sort of uh, higher end restaurants open to great success and fanfare in new york and la and sf um it's definitely true that there is a huge correlation between the two, and I think we'll continue to see that as China and America continue to like, hopefully continue to trade and work together, and it becomes overtly clear that like a lot more Chinese money and talent are coming here. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's interesting to see, and I'm interested to see how it grows. But do you, what do you think the impact uh, COVID will have on all of that? I think for the most part, um, COVID has been like a very uh, a clear message on like all the broken aspects of our industry. I think we're seeing the fact that many small independent restaurants are going to really struggle to survive this while bigger restaurants and chains like are not is, is because we have a pretty messed up way of like how that actually, how we're actually able to make any money um, in the industry. Like, the only thing you can do is volume sales basically, or have deep pockets and have an investor base, whatever. Um, so I think, I think we're going to see a lot of people in the kind of like independent small restaurants drop out or not be able to make it, which is really, really unsettling because then I don't know what the food landscape is going to look like, especially in the major cities, because the, you know, the real charm or the importance of, New York's food scene or LA's food scene or SF's food scene on the US is that it has a much higher ratio of these like niche independent restaurants and not chains. Um, so uh, like if they can't lead the way that way, and someone would argue that New York already has kind of fallen off that bandwagon. But anyway, um, for uh, for the restaurants that don't make it, it's like what who is going to be leading the the charge you know on what food you know the next generation of food in the u.s looks like i'm not sure so anyway i'm kind of i'm kind of nervous to see how all this shakes out and then hopefully we'll also see some action around 
how we pay workers and like some sort of appreciation, I hope, for a lot of undocumented essential workers that we have, not just in restaurants, but also in agriculture. I mean, they really prop up both of those industries and there's a reason those are two so such correlated industries. So um, hopefully we'll be able to understand how important they are to our economy and that will have some sort of impact on our immigration system. But who knows under the current presidency if that will happen. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I definitely uh, share your concern over smaller independent restaurants. Cause like you said, those are going to be hit pretty hard. And also like the sustainability of being a chef. I mean, we talked about this in our last episode of how, you know, for a lot of people, it isn't financially stable to be a chef in a fine or a cook in a fine dining restaurant um in a michelin restaurant and so it's just like you know seeing friends lose jobs seeing people that follow the page you know out of work i mean it's definitely been tough and obviously a large part of that is due to the, the virus and everything shutting down but there's also a part that you know it's just you said the industry is I don't know. I feel like we're not as stable as I think we thought we were. And I, I don't know. I, it's, it is worrisome to see moving forward how we're going to figure it out because there definitely does have to be some sort of improvement on how we take care of everyone, like how, how this industry is represented in the country. I mean, you know, it, why, why is there no more support, including not just, you know, the restaurant industry, but education of food in school systems more often or like I had no education growing up on food besides a health class and my, you know, like my health class just said a little bit about like the food pyramid, but that was really it for me. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think there has to be more importance in general in food, but that's obviously another conversation to get into. Yeah. That's a whole nother, yeah, a whole nother thing. Um, but I really uh, wanted to stick with the work you've been doing. Cause obviously for some time I've wanted to have you on. I think it's, really interesting. I think it's really, I don't know. I, I think you're, what you're doing and how you're using your, for me, like, I guess what I really look up to you for is like, you're, I, I know you're a very talented chef and you're really using your talent to branch out and kind of deliver a message that's much needed. And while you could have, you know, just gone for fine dining and worked like really hard in Michelin kitchens, like I really thought it was a lot cooler to see you make this organization and I know you're also an author and you you write cookbooks and like, I don't know. I just think that that path has been cool. What was it like for you to write uh, your cookbook? Um, I mean, it's been, I've had a couple different experiences and um, I think, yeah, they're maybe a little different from how other people find like cookbook deals. Um, Both of them were essentially commissioned to me or all three, all four of them were commissioned to me in different ways. So I have one that's a client of mine. Um, they make appliances and they were publishing like a, co- a cookbook that would go alongside. Um, it's not with the appliance. You, like, you still have to buy the book, but it's like specifically for one of their appliances that can be used for um, air fryers in general or little rice cookers in general. Um, so that like that turned into two different books. One was about all these things you can make with air fryers and one was about all these things you can make with um, rice cookers. And then from those, um, another publisher found my work um, and was like, oh, we're interested in doing um, a couple books on this topic. One was about Instant Pots and then one was about healthy cocktails. So one I actually did with my husband where I took all the photos, he did all the recipes and then we both did a little bit of the writing. And then one was kind of more of like a 
a science sciencey technique book about instant pots and like literally how they work. Um, so very different types of books, um, but from the same publisher. And then that kind of spiraled into another publisher had reached out to me about um, a grilling book that they wanted to do. So all of the concepts of the books had all already been planned out. Um, I've also gone through the process of pitching my concept or not my concept, but a concept like if, on behalf of someone else. Um, and that's a very different, yeah, very different path, uh, very different like story. But yeah, at some point I want to do a cookbook that's specifically everything, like everything that I've made over the years and what I believe in, et cetera. But I just don't think that I'm like, I don't have all of that yet. Okay. Would you ever consider writing a book about kind of your experience? I mean, obviously that cookbook would share those experiences, but would you ever write, uh, not a cookbook, but just like a book in general that you would kind of describe what you kind of, I guess, face growing up or what you face like going through the industry and kind of your ideas for change? Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I've never thought about writing memoir. I just like, don't feel like my, I feel like people who write memoirs, their like lives are a little bit more interesting than mine, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's an interesting story. I mean, I'm, I, I would totally read it, but I don't know. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a good idea. I don't know if you ever uh, do let me know though. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, I guess moving forward, uh, um, what? So once, like once, I guess what I would like to know now, like after hearing everything you kind of shared and what you've been working on, is has the pandemic shaped how you're going to be kind of sharing a message moving forward in terms of trying to kind of get us off center with the views we have in terms of food media and how we kind of just view cooking as a whole in our country, or do you think you're going to stay the same route of doing the dinners and, you know, talks and trying to just educate people as much as you can? Um, definitely both. Um, we've been working hard on for sure building out this like community arm, because as much as I love doing the dinners, as love as much as I, I love building out these different series that we have, um, at the end of the day, like we can only reach a small demographic of people. Uh, it depends on every event, but like we, I, we want to be able to engage our community more than that. Um, and also like many times people who come to the dinner, they'll come once or maybe they'll come twice, but it's also not necessarily people in food. These are people interested in food who like to go out and have an interesting dinner experience. They care about social justice and stuff but it's not like the industry, not the professionals that are like working in the industry day to day. So um, we definitely want to continue doing these community initiatives, whether they're the uh, salons, or we call them experimental salons, the small group discussions I mentioned earlier, that's a facilitated conversation, as well as these community skill shares as we like keep going for the future. Okay. Uh, can you explain what the community skill shares entail? Yeah, so community skill shares, we have... Um, essentially a expert of some variety come in and do a virtual learning class with our community. So for example, two episodes about uh, finance. One was financial planning for small business owners and one was navigating your personal finances um, during COVID-19. These are obviously mm -hmm. a complicated topic that people like, either be kind of avoid it can be kind of triggering for some people it's not like it's just a very difficult field to learn and so um not explain all that in a video and then we also accompany each of the videos with these big resources document where we do a lot of research about the 
the topics that we're covering. So for personal finance, like understanding how to use credit card debt, that's like a very weird and confusing topic and breaking it down into like layman's terms so that people can actually, you know, have a getter, get a better hold on how they want to use debt during this time. Um, we mm-hmm. have another on Friday that's coming up that's going to be about mask sewing. So um, how to make masks with or without a sewing machine since we kind of need masks right now. And then we have um, four episodes about mental health. One is um, like processing grief during COVID-19. One is um, navigating personal relationships. One is about um, uh, developing healthy coping mechanisms. And one is like therapy 101, like understanding, you know, what kind of therapy might benefit you during this time. And then we'll do doing a couple on civic engagement. So like, what is civics? Like literally, what is it? Um, how does it work? How to get politically engaged? And then how does our government work? And then also understanding your local politics so that people can you know, activate and make a difference because usually local, po- local politics is, okay. yeah, is the place that your voice is usually heard the most. Okay, awesome. Yeah, you kind of cut out, you cut out at the end for a second. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, so where, so just so everyone knows, like, I mean, obviously if you just want to share your Instagram and like, where else can they find these resources at anyone that's kind of looking or listening right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can find the studio at studio at which is atao.org. Um, and that stands for all together at once. So if you go into our website, you'll see a section that says resources blog and all of the resources for all the community skill shares, as well as the experimental salons are there. Um, you can also uh, find us on Instagram. It's at Studio Atao, A-T-A-O. Um, and my personal Instagram is at Chef Jenny Dorsey. Right, awesome. Uh, great. Well, you know, like I said, I'm very interested in this, in seeing this topic grow and kind of seeing you share this i mean you know kind of just following along since we last talked i mean you've you've done a lot and you know i just think it's like really amazing to see like i said you taking your skills and your role as a chef and kind of trying to change the society that we kind of live in right now in terms of the food industry and whatnot uh once this is all said and done what are some dinner plans or what are some plans for dinners that you would kind of go into or what are some events that you might that we might see uh, from Studio Atau after this is over. Yeah, the biggest thing that we've been working on is something called Glass Through Skin, which is about the invisibility of female pain and the normalization of female pain and just talking about how historically um, the world has been built on women and women laborers and their work, but um, so often that is either seen as like like non-essential or it's seen as something that shouldn't be paid for. I mean, if you just forget... Um, kind of how how healthcare works. There's so many care like caring professions that are um, notoriously underpaid, poorly staffed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, like if you look at how maternity leave works in this country and how we view uh, you know, child rearing essentially, or how when women of, of like a woman with a child are perceived in the workplace, all of those things. There's just there's just a lot there to unpack. Um, so yeah, that's our next experience. We're hoping to get that out. Uh, timelines are really strange now, but hopefully before the end of the year, if not early next year. All right, sounds good. Uh, the last kind of question I had, or last topic that I wanted to get into in terms of content you're putting out, which I thought was really cool, and I thought the photos looked really cool, like amazing, was the 
pantry engineering series that you've had on your Instagram and also just the general knowledge posts that you've been putting out about like how to stack your kitchen. Where did yeah. you get that idea from? And um, are you, do you plan on doing more of that during the pandemic or? Yeah, I, I, I've been like receiving a lot of like, I don't know what to make or like, I've been seeing so many people start cooking online. And most of my chef friends are doing like cooking classes of some sort, which is great. Uh, so I just kind of felt like I don't really need to be doing cooking classes because there's so many people already doing them. Uh, is there something that I can do that would be useful? And one of the main things, like hopeful things that I've been hearing is like, oh, well, I want to spend this time to actually like learn how to cook and without recipes from people, because often you can't buy, you know, certain things that you would have access to, or, you know, maybe you don't find it's a great time to buy that one, like obscure ingredient for this one recipe. So you're like learning kind of how to cook more freely. And so on that note, I think the most important way to learn how to cook is really understanding what you're using, because most people just like, oh, I'm gonna put olive oil in here. But there's no like, like, there's no thought on like why I'm using olive oil or how much or what kind or whatever. Just like how we like put salt in and then we're like not thinking about the salt. Um, so yeah, the whole pantry engineering series has just been about hopefully explaining to people how they can like build their cooking knowledge from the ground up and what they should be really thinking about flavor wise as they're creating a dish. Right. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I thought I saw those and I thought they were really cool. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really like how well put together they are and like the photos are really like pretty. So yeah, <laughs> just, a good job on that. I, I just thought it was, I mean, it was almost like a nerd moment because you see all these things that, um, you know, that I, that I, a lot of the stuff I do have in my pantry and it was just like really cool to see it all put together in an uh, Instagram post that was concise and was able to kind of share with people what they're, uh, what they should have to cook at home. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, I'm glad that you went. Yeah, so I, yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to see some more. I mean, there's definitely some things uh, that I thought were interesting, like the beef tallow, uh, something I don't have in my uh, in my you kitchen should. that I definitely uh, need to get. It's really <laughs> what uh, well, what do you? F- yeah. What Sorry. what do you find yourself cooking right now during this? Um, I mean, I've been kind of using this as like a as a way to also keep myself motivated I try to do like one totally new recipe a week so I'll just look online and like what's something I haven't eaten before and try and make that and obviously there's like little limitations on like if I can't buy certain things but so within yeah. reason um and also like I can't I don't really have the time or it's more I have the time but I don't have the energy to make something like super complicated um but for example I did like this um Polish like stew two weeks ago that was like, very different from what I usually cook at home so um, that was really it was really good it was really interesting um, last week I did this like Croatian stew like fish stew that was also really interesting and again something I haven't had before um, I want to try um, making that like uh, Enera like the Ethiopian um, soured bread um, so like just giving myself like one experiment or one new thing to learn every week has been yeah has been like how I've been coping right awesome yeah um yeah I think it's interesting to kind of ask what chefs are cooking right now because I've, I've heard a lot of people experimenting and then I've heard a lot of people resorting to comfort food um yeah. so it's been interesting yeah I've definitely been eating plenty of comfort food but I need to like make myself do something to like <laughs> brain active yeah definitely awesome um, is there anything else you'd want to share, I guess, on the topics we discussed or, 
Um, a- a- anything else that you really wanted to get into on the podcast or? No, I don't think so. You, I think you covered most of it. Awesome. Well, you know, I do want to thank you uh, first and foremost for coming back on the show. I know we had trouble the last time, or I, I really at my schedule had trouble kind of making the time to work back in September, but I'm glad you were able to come back on now and hopefully you'll be back on in the future to, you know, help promote or support any other events or, you know, anything other initiatives that you're kind of working towards. I mean, like I said, I really am interested and invested in the mission of Studio Atau and what you're working on and whatever I can share and however I can help, just let me know. Of course. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, thanks for coming on and, um, yeah, I mean, I know you kind of listed your, uh, Instagram and whatnot, but you also do run a podcast still? No, I don't. I, um, sorry, I moved to Los Angeles or at least somewhat temporarily and the okay. podcast is in New York. Um, but it's a wonderful woman named Valerie took my place and everybody should still listen to it. It's called Why Food Podcast. Why Food. All right. Awesome. Well, like I said, Chef, thank you so much for coming on and hopefully we'll chat soon. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too.